Previously on Small Town Shadows The Wilson family moved to the small, quiet town of Brighton, Newfoundland, but their big, beautiful new house wasn't as uninhabited as they presumed. Andrea and Charisse, the youngest Wilson children, were plagued every night by nightmares, and soon Blaine, the oldest son, came face to face with a man who wasn't there. A man who stood over six feet tall, dressed in a buckskin suit, wearing a fur-lined hat and a rabbit's foot on a chain around his neck, his mouth spread into a grin unnaturally wide across his face. But it was his eyes that filled Blaine with terror. The man's eyes were pitch black and haunted. Good evening and welcome to Small Town Shadows. I'm your host, Victoria, and I'm here to weave you a tale that is sure to send shivers down your spine. This week's episode was shared with me by a fan of Small Town Shadows. You can tell me your tale via the form on my website. You can find the link in the description section below. And just maybe your story will be the next episode. As always, the following account is based on real events. However, the names and locations have been changed to protect the privacy of those involved. Please keep in mind that these narratives are not for the faint of heart and may frighten or disturb you. But now, before you get too comfortable, you should go turn off your lights. It's time to relax, clear your mind, and sip some tea as I take you back to the small town of Brighton, Newfoundland. Before Blaine could make sense of what he saw, his father burst into the office. Scott was beside himself, waving a piece of paper around. D's! You're getting a D in more than half of your classes! Blaine, what is going on? Blaine forgot all about the strange man and his soulless eyes. He suddenly felt sick for a different reason. I can explain, he sputtered quickly trying to come up with a good excuse for his disappointing grades. No, you can't. You can't explain this away, Blaine. You're no longer allowed to play hockey, and other than to do research for your homework, the computer is off limits too. You're 13 years old. Your top priority needs to be school. You don't have any excuses for this. Pull your grades up before they don't let you graduate to grade 10. Scott was livid and exasperated. Blaine was equally enraged at his father. Well, maybe if you didn't make me go to this new stupid school, I wouldn't be failing. This is all yours and mom's fault, he spat. I hate my school, I hate this house, and I hate you and mom for making me move here. Scott stood there, staring at his son. He was at a loss for words. He had never seen this side of his little boy before. Blaine never so much as yelled at his brother when he had broken his skateboard 
or gotten angry at his sisters when they thought it would be funny to put makeup on him while he slept. And yet, this boy standing in front of him had so much built-up aggression that it almost looked like Blaine grew a few feet as he yelled. I'm sorry, Blaine. I know this is difficult, but you can't blame anyone for your not doing well in classes. You just need to try harder and ask for help when you're confused, Scott tried to say in a more understanding voice, but Blaine cut him off with an odd, barking laugh. Ask for help? Like you could help me. You don't know the first thing about what I'm doing. You can help Andrea and Sharice and Dennis because what they're learning is stupid easy. But you know nothing. You're too dumb to help me. Don't act like you were such a great student. I know you sucked at school too. Thank God mom got a good job. Otherwise, we'd probably be poor and homeless. Scott took a small step back from his son shaking his head, his anger bubbling up again. As he watched his son hurl slanderous insult after slanderous insult, he noticed a shadow fall across Blaine's face, making his eyes look almost hollow. You are grounded, young man. No TV, no phone, no dessert until further notice. You have no idea what you're talking about and need to watch what you say to me and your mother. On that note, Scott left the room, slamming the door behind himself so hard that a framed picture fell to the floor, shattering. Blaine stood there, numb and nauseous. He looked at the shards of glass scattered all over the floor, and after a long moment of just staring at them, he knelt to clean up the mess. It didn't take long for him to gather the large pieces into a pile, but as he was trying to pick up the small shards, he noticed something unusual about the floorboards. One was missing a nail, and it had a sliver of a crack just big enough for a small finger to slide through. Without hesitation, he lifted up the loose floorboard. There was a small, incredibly dusty tin box wedged beneath the floor. Blaine pried it out and quickly opened it to reveal its contents. There within the box lay a number of newspaper clippings, a lighter, a hand-drawn map, and an old withering rabbit's foot. He darted to the door, checked to make sure no one was going to walk in on him, then returned to the box and began reading the articles. Family slaughtered, worst mass murder in Newfoundland history. June 24th, 1927, Brighton. It's been two days since the police discovered the bodies of Franklin Landry, 43, Claire Landry, 41, and their four children, Charlotte, 15, Emily, 10, Mason, seven, and Carter, four. There are still no suspects. Blaine switched to another article in the pile. Teen suicide rate on the rise, February 12, 2013, Brighton. Since early 2012, there has been an overwhelming amount of suicides in Brighton, Newfoundland. Studies show... Blaine flipped to yet another article. Reparations to Indigenous People. Is it too little too late? October 23, 1975, Brighton. 
Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau has called for all providences to give reparations to Murder-Suicide, A Neighborhood Nightmare, April 7, 1998, Brighton Clark Evans, 52, took his own life after killing his wife, Mia, 54, and three sons, Adam, 17, Hudson, 14, and Oliver, 9, in the early hours of April 7th. Neighbors heard gunshots. Blaine sat there, reading through the articles before him, confused. Why would someone have saved these and hidden them away? And why were they all so morbid? He quickly gathered them up and returned the box to its hiding spot before the footsteps, which were quickly approaching, entered the room. Mom said she's tired of hollering for you to come down. Dinner's ready on the table, so please come eat, Dennis said as he barged into the room. I'm not hungry. Leave me alone, Blaine blurted out before he even knew what he was saying. Dennis looked hurt, as if Blaine had insulted him, and he scampered off back downstairs to tattle on him, no doubt. They'd probably be happier if you would just leave. They wouldn't have to worry about you failing any more classes if you just gave up entirely. The voice spoke to Blaine from inside his head. They probably wouldn't even notice you're gone. They barely notice you as it is. Over and over again, the voice repeated itself. Blaine squeezed his eyes shut tightly, trying to block the voice out. He had balled his fists up again, not noticing the blood dripping onto his blanket from wounds he was cutting into his palms. The voice continued like this until Blaine felt a soft nudge on his shoulder and his mom's voice cut through the darkness. It's time to wake up, sweetheart. You're going to be late for school. Sharon opened the blinds in Blaine's room to let the sunlight in. I also wanted to talk to you for a moment. She sat down on the edge of his bed, waiting for him to open his eyes and sit up. I know this move wasn't fair, and it's tough starting at a new school halfway through the first semester, and I'm so proud of how you've stepped up and helped your brother and sisters. I'm sorry that my job took us here and that you're not having an easy time, but it will get better, I promise. Your father and I love you so much, and we just want the best for you. She stroked his cheek, brushing the hair out of his eyes. Blaine didn't look at her. His eyes were swollen and red from crying. He was too angry and too tired to care what she was saying. He waited until she got up to leave, and right after she kissed him on the forehead, he muttered, too little, too late, under his breath. Sharon didn't hear him. She just left the room, quickly tapping on the clock on the bedside table, signaling that he needed to hurry up. Blaine dragged himself out of bed and stood in front of the mirror for an unusually long time, staring at his own reflection without so much as blinking. What's the point? A low, deep growl followed his rhetorical question. He then mussed his hair up how he likes, changed his clothes quickly, 
and hurried out the door to catch his bus. Weeks turned into months, and Blaine found himself becoming more and more reclusive. Even after his father lifted the grounding sentence, he couldn't bring himself to watch TV or play hockey with his brother. He just kept to himself, bouncing between his bedroom and the office, giving off the appearance of studying diligently, but in reality, he found hours tick by without his noticing as he would space out or simply doodle in a notebook. It was an exceptionally cold day when Andrea crept into the office where Blaine had holed himself up for the past five hours. He hadn't even noticed her come in. He just sat at the desk, eyes open but not seeing. His mind seemed to be elsewhere. I don't think he's a very nice man. Andrea's little voice cut through the silence like a bullet. Blaine jumped, startled by her abruptness. She sounded sad, and she refused to look at Blaine. She just stared at the floor and her feet. I don't like him. Who? Who are you talking about? Blaine was confused. He looked around the room as if to see who she was talking about, but found no one else with them. Andrea continued to stare at the floor, swinging her arms nervously. The tall man. He talks to me. He tells me secrets. But I don't like them. They're not nice secrets. She bit her lip. I don't think he likes you very much either. Blaine was getting annoyed at his sister. She was making no sense, and she refused to look at him. I don't know who you're talking about, and you're pissing me off. Andrea squeaked. Just leave me alone. Get out! Blaine's voice had risen into a yell. Please don't listen to him. Andrea cried as she scurried out of the room. Blaine slammed the door behind her, locking it as he did. Suicide epidemic, March 17, 2019, Brighton. At first, police officers thought it was a suicide pact amongst the youth in our town, but after the recent victims were found, Paul Brown, 27, Avery Johnson, 31, Felix Gagnon, 48, and Emily Ross, 23, the authorities are beginning to wonder. Blaine smirked, tossing the newspaper aside. He had clipped out the article to add it to his macabre collection. I wonder how I'd do it if I were to kill myself, he mused out loud to the empty dark office. Didn't you secretly keep one of those shards of glass from the shattered frame a few months ago? A disembodied voice answered him. That would be too messy, too much effort, and they'd be able to save me if they got to me in time. Blaine answered casually, as if he were speaking to a friend about cooking a new recipe. What about jumping out of the window? It's an awfully far drop. Not far enough. I'd probably just break my leg, and then Dad would put prison bars on the window for my own safety, he said in a mocking voice. The conversation continued on like this for some time, well into the night. Unbeknownst to Blaine, Andrea was sitting at the office door, silently crying, listening to every word that he and the tall man were saying. Daddy, wake up! Something's wrong! Daddy, wake up! 
Andrea was shaking her father as violently as she could. Daddy! What? What's going on? Oh, it's... it's you, Andrea. Scott was half asleep, groggy, and struggling to open his eyes. It's just a nightmare again, baby. You're okay. Just sleep with me tonight. Nothing can hurt you in here, he said, closing his eyes again. No, it's Blaine. Something's wrong. He was talking to the tall man, but then he stopped talking. She was still shaking her father. Blaine's asleep, Andrea. You should be too. Scott was doing his best to be asleep as well. Please, Daddy, please come with me. After pleading and negotiating a few more times, Andrea finally convinced her father to drag himself out of bed and follow her. He then walked to Blaine's bedroom door before Andrea stopped him. He's not in there. He's in the tall man's room. She walked to the office door. Scott was confused and he ignored his daughter, opening his son's bedroom door and peering inside. To his surprise, Andrea was right. Blaine wasn't in his bed nor in his room at all. Thinking his son must have fallen asleep while studying or playing a video game, he proceeded to enter the office. That's strange. We removed the lock when he failed his midterms. Why can't I get the door open? Scott tried pushing the door open, but after struggling for a good minute, he gave up. He then proceeded to bang on the door, figuring he could wake Blaine up that way at least, but he received no response. Soon, Dennis and Charisse had joined Andrea and Scott outside the office door. The children chimed in yelling for Blaine to wake up and open the door, while Scott ran down to the garage to grab a screwdriver. He was livid. Why was Blaine being like this? He used to be such a good kid, kind-hearted, smart, and happy-go-lucky. Scott doesn't even recognize his son anymore. This was so frustrating and awful and infuriating. It didn't take long for Scott to unscrew the office door from its hinges. It didn't take long for Andrea to pierce the air with an ear-splitting scream. It didn't take long for Charisse to run and hide in her bedroom. And it didn't take long at all for Dennis to faint. What did take too long was the police and paramedics to arrive. What did take too long was getting a hold of Sharon, and it took much too long for her to get home. What did take too long was cutting Blaine's lifeless body down from the ceiling fan. All the while, a man, well over six feet tall, dressed in a buckskin suit, wearing a fur-lined hat and a rabbit's foot on a chain around his neck, loomed off in the corner of the office. His mouth was in a grin spread unnaturally wide across his face, but his eyes, his eyes were pitch black and haunted. Such a shame. I hate being wrong. It seems they do notice you're gone. The man whispered to no one. He then smiled his unnatural smile again and waved 
at the little girl who once had a big brother named Blaine. Do you believe that the indigenous people of Newfoundland could have been so brutally treated that their spirits linger on to haunt the descendants of their oppressors? Do you believe that these spirits haunt the citizens so severely that it drives many to suicide? Do you believe in Akuzi Inini? I'd love to hear what you think. Tell me your thoughts, theories, and experiences in the comments section below and be sure to subscribe so that you can be properly spooked every Friday night. And on that note, sleep tight and don't forget to check under your bed for any lurking guests.